This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. Hello and welcome to For the Wild podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Claudia Serrato. And so when we return to these earth-centered gastronomies, we sort of recalibrate and, and hit that refresh button that creates cyclical relationality, cyclical flavors, cyclical tastes for all life from now and, and on to the generations to come, which is inclusive of the next elderberry, the next cactus, the next hawk, the next bear, the next water, the next salmon. We're all related. Dr. Claudia Serrato is a cultural and culinary anthropologist, an indigenous plant-based chef, and a food justice activist scholar. Claudia has been writing, speaking, and cooking up decolonized flavors for over a decade by re-indigenizing her diet with Mesoamerican food and foodways, cooking traditions and nutrition, and culinary ways of knowing. Well, Dr. Serrato, thank you so much for joining us on For the Wild Podcast. I'm really looking forward to having a lovely and deep conversation today. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. Wonderful. Well, I just want to start off by saying I was so impressed with your rootedness in what you practice and study. And I just want to think about a strong through line in your work, which is the connection between body, food, and soul. And you capture really eloquently the way we cannot separate our theories of the land and the body from their actual embodiment. So I'm wondering what this embodiment means to you and how it relates to practice across disciplines. You know, that's a really good question. Immediately, you know, I think about photosynthesis, uh, kid you not, and this was a teaching that was provided to me um, by one of the chefs I work with, uh, Chef Nephi Craig. And we were really thinking about indigenous feminist theories around the body, like you just mentioned, and, you know, understanding our body as landscape. And we began to think about, okay, well, you know, when we're talking about embodiment, right, it's always been that the human is the only person that can embody and and i was like well what about the food and you know they have a way of embodying too and you know as our relatives and as our kin and you know what does it mean when we enter you know into a relationship and how do we exchange you know what we know what we arrive with and 
too, right? We cook with the food, we ingest the food. And so in understanding concepts around embodiment, I began to really reflect and, and, and understand that I too was embodying what my plant relatives embody, right? Which is the elements, earth, wind, water, fire, the sun, you know, different kind of energies. And, you know, what does that do for me, right? It, it completes me. It really makes me whole um, in that it is necessary to see and understand that landscape is alive, right? The plants and the, and the different kind of elements and the minerals, the micro life, right? It all, it all has a way of knowing it all embodies and you know, that kind of embodiment can't be passed on and shared. And, you know, and what do we do with that, right? How do we honor that particular type of embodiment? And for me, it became, I want to say a spiritual quest, a spiritual awakening and, and understanding that, you know, there, there's something deeper and stronger when it comes to understanding the connections between body, food and soul. Mm -hmm. Gosh, this is such a good way to start my morning personally. <laughs> uh, really is getting me off on a good foot. Well, thinking particularly about these embodied connections, I want to think through the connections you foster with the land on which you find yourself. I'm particularly interested in the ways you connect both with your ancestors and with the specific land that you inhabit. So the question is for me, how can we honor both where we came from and where we are now in our traditions? Yes. You know, and that's, again, is such a great question. Um, you know, one thing that I have learned and, you know, truly understand is, again, and going back to this understanding that our bodies are landscape, right? And so we're mobile bodies, we're mobile geographies, right? We move in time, place, and space, um, and then we settle. Like myself, my family comes from Mexico. We come from Michoacan. We come from San Luis Potosí. But I live in L.A., right? Um, this is the Tongva, Los Angeles. And, you know, I, I honor my, myself, my body, my culture, my food ways, but I'm also very aware that, you know, it should also reflect the place-based geography, right? The relatives here, the landscape here. And, you know, it, it, at first I, I kind of battled with that um, for a minute because I was really just consuming foods that were culturally relevant to me at one point in my life. And, you know, once I began to spend more time in nature, with nature, as nature, I began to understand the importance of you know, eating what the land here provides for me. You know, it's a way that the land is, is offering its gift. It's saying here, thank you, please take. And, you know, the lessons that have I've been taught is that if we do not accept the gifts, then they're going to go away. And so for me, I understand that not only am I a mobile geography, not only are my taste memories mobile, um, but I'm also, right, reciting in Tongva, Los Angeles, and so um, I honor that through my food ways. I honor that through the seasons. I honor that, you know, through how I, you know, rehomed 
uh, some of the ancestral plant relatives, you know, in my home space. Um, I took out, you know, some invasive, I, I took out my grass and I, and I replanted, um, you know, from cultural burns, um, some of the plants so that it becomes part of my like new memory, right? The new memories that I am creating by tapping into the different ways that I know, right? Through my senses, through my taste. And ultimately, um, I want to say honoring the, the trade routes and, you know, through the, ge the geographic location I am, at, I am in. And that is because, um, you know, before colonialism, and even now, because we have this particular global system that and food is moving, you know, from here, there and everywhere, right, there was there was a knowledge exchange, there was a, a palate exchange, a gastronomic exchange. And, you know, that ultimately leads to, you know, vitality in, in how we eat. And so for me, understanding these particular geographies and how they come together, I do my best to represent them in cuisine. And, um, you know, it holds me accountable um, also because of the work that I do specifically as an indigenous uh, culinary anthropologist and chef. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate both the small and the larger ways that you're doing this healing work. And I think it's a really good reminder for all of us that there's so many ways to begin for ourselves in our own journeys. Uh, and I want to thank you for sharing your identity and your rootedness. And I'm thinking a lot about the ways we can move beyond identity politics towards an understanding of identity that truly connects us with our ancestors and place, not just as heritage, but also as embodied spiritual and political tradition as well. So I'm wondering for you, what does it mean to exist as a sovereign person with a deep understanding of identity? Yeah, you know, I've been thinking a lot about that. I've been thinking about the cultural politics of identity. I've been thinking about, you know, my, my body as, as a sovereign landscape. Um, and I also, of course, you know, can't help, can, can't help and think about it in terms of, you know, decolonizing my body, decolonizing my landscape. And, but at the end of the day, I think about, you know, my sense of self and, you know, what that means for me as an indigenous uh, Chicana woman uh, living in Los Angeles, right, um, who is constantly reminded, you know, and told that I have to be a specific way with, you know, the social construction of identity and so forth. And, you know, I've learned that, you know, identity formation um, is never like the same, right? It's constantly moving, it's constantly evolving, just like tradition. And so for me, you know, I might feel and be one way one day, and, you know, I will receive a form of enlightenment or a message, and that's going to really alter um, who I am the next. And so for me, it becomes more so fluid, like a fluid identity. Um, it's constantly evolving. And but at the same time, it's it's aware, right? I'm very aware of where I come from. I'm very aware of the history that has, you know, created who I am, the, the social aspects of, of who I am. Um, but I'm, I, I don't hold on to that. Um, and again, you know, that that really aligns with my spirituality. 
Um, it aligns with, you know, being with nature, um, understanding that, you know, like the seasons, right? There's, there's time to um, dry up. There's times to go away. There's times to um, shape shift. Um, there's times to bloom. And, and with that bloom, not every bloom is the same, right? And so um, I'm, I have learned that, you know, it, it's a beautiful experience. It's beautiful to, to take in what, what is necessary for my growth, to let go what is not, um, and, and to be open to what's to come. And so, you know, when, when thinking about my identity and, and autonomy, um, I, I feel that I have the right to, to be who I choose to be and, and not allow outside forces to tell me who I am. And, and for me, that, that makes me feel really good, to be honest. Um, and, and this goes right along the lines of, you know, my food choices and how I choose to eat and, and why and when and how. And for me, you know, that, that really speaks to the kind of sovereign body that I choose to exist in, um, particularly during this time of, you know, the, the decolonial era where we're beginning to remember and revitalize and regenerate those ways of knowing who we are that have been suppressed and oppressed um, as a result of colonization. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to move on specifically into your wealth of knowledge on food and cooking and <laughs> I want to think especially about the ways that enjoying food can be such a sensual experience. And I'm thinking particularly of the James Baldwin quote from his work, The Fire Next Time, where he writes, quote, to be sensual, I think, is to respect and rejoice in the force of life, of life itself, and to be present in all that one does, from the effort of loving to the breaking of bread, end quote. And I'm wondering perhaps what part of this resonates with you and how do you connect to this element of sensuality across your work? You know, I love that question so much. Um, it just makes me so happy just, just hearing it and hearing the quote you shared. Um, it brings me back to the kitchen. Um, for me, it's, very, it's a very intimate space. Um, it's a space where I'm very vulnerable, right? So for that, um, you have to trust. And for me, you know, that's the beginning of intimacy. It's, it's me saying, you know, hello, I trust you. And um, I trust you touching my body. I trust how we're going to move together, how we're going to dance together, um, how we're going to liberate each other together. Um, and, you know, when I've cooked, there's has always been this type of intimacy that at one point I, I really, it was really hard for me to understand. I, I, I didn't understand, I guess I should say many years back, um, you know, because I did understand like this, this, this involvement, this engagement in the kitchen with native foods was, you know, very intimate and uh, years back, I attended um, an eco-sexuality conference and in hopes that I would um, become enlightened. And um, it was just so wonderful because there was indigenous presence. 
And Melissa Nelson actually began to talk about food as as intimate and, and began to really speak on a type of indigenous ecosexuality and which was wasn't the way we understand, you know, or popular culture understand sexuality. It was, you know, a way of touching that brought this, this different kind of like I want to say this different type of, of comfort, uh, this wholeness. And and I understood that because I was feeling that. And and it began, to, you know, it would make me feel really happy, to be honest with you. Um, and it wasn't until I began to, you know, prep food and talk with the food that it became more sensual. It became very delicate. It became this exchange. Uh, my fingers were, you know, running through the food very differently. And there was a feeling of satisfaction that was very different from what I've ever felt. Um, with other intimate relationships that I have. And, you know, and, and it wasn't until I prepared um, a particular meal once that I took a bite of it and I actually paid attention to to my body. I paid attention to my mouth. I paid attention to the sounds I was making. And I thought, geez, that sounds real orgasmic. And, and it's because it was. It was, it was so satisfying. And, you know, it was just, you know, it was very different, um, but yet so fulfilling. And so I truly have understood that, right, how we savor food, how our mouth begins to desire taste. All of that is part of that intimate, sensual experience. And then more so once we actually take a bite of the food and it makes us go, oh, or, oh my goodness, this is so great, right? There's like this deep joy. Um, and I'm sure other food lovers uh, could understand that. And for me, you know, I, I finally began to, to really um, appreciate those moments um, because it was about, you know, me and the food exchanging and touching and, you know, tapping into my senses with a whole other, like, I want to say, uh, you know, it's just like what we say, it's a next level experience. Um, and, and, and again, very intimate, very soft. Um, it's a type of, you know, food sexuality, I want to say that, um, really kept me and keeps me wanting to play with flavors and and texture and you know be open to to the unknown mm -hmm. ah, i'm just remembering orgasmic food experiences and um, <laughs> and really how much pleasure that has brought me over the years and and i think in a time where we're being sold so many things to fulfill us, how simple and beautiful fresh bread is, you know, and of course, food takes its own energy to get to us. But I just really want to pause on that for a minute, because I, I feel that and I think too, there's something so vital and and simple just about the act of cooking as well. And I'm thinking of the ways recipes are passed down and the communities that can form within kitchens and gardens. And I'm wondering if you could give us a glimpse into your kitchen. What does the act of cooking mean for you? 
Yeah. You know, when I was growing up, for me, I understood cooking as a domestic labor. I understood it as, you know, a place the way I was told, right? It's a gendered place. And I, for me, it was really problematic, but it wasn't again until I began to really work on creating a relationship with food that I began to realize that no, the kitchen actually was a safe and a brave space for me. Um, it was a space where I can explore, where I can, um, again, be vulnerable and, and more so where I can, you know, become um, the medicine woman, right? That, that I have always, you know, sort of been destined to be, um, and it's become, uh, like Merida Sabarca, she talks about this as like a borderless unbounded zone, right? Um, this is the place where I have the ability to heal myself, my family. It is a place where I can take out my molcajete. It is a place where I can, you know, bring out my, my mordo and my pesto and pound my salts. Um, it's a place where, you know, it's, it's a decolonized zone, right? The, there's colors, there's plants, there's ancestral realities that exist there. There are my ancestral foods that don't have to be in a place of submission. They're, they're remembered, they are celebrated, you know, and, and it's kind of like when we say, oh, you know, there's a food, there's a party in my, in, in my stomach, right? When we're eating, I feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's that it's, um, it's a party, <laughs> it's a gathering, it's a celebration. And so when I enter the kitchen, you know, I burn my sage, I, 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 you know, I, I create my offerings. I thank the ancestors for being there with me, the elements, you know, I really have been taught to pay attention to how the earth resides in my kitchen, how, you know, air, water and fire, how they play out in the creation of the recipes that I prepare for myself and or for my family. Also to the volcanic rocks and the wisdom that they bring into the kitchen. And, you know, and, and so it, it really humbles me um, and it makes me grateful to be in a kitchen, to have a kitchen and, and more so to extend my kitchen beyond the, the four walls of, of, of my home. I have also created an outdoor space where I can cook and prep and where I can walk up to my mint and my poblano chiles and harvest, you know, right there and then. And same thing with my, my front yard. It's, it, it's an extension of my kitchen. I can go out there and I can harvest, you know, my fresh California bay. I can harvest, you know, elderflower and, you know, all these, um, you know, my, my sage, my black sage, my white sage, my culinary sage. And so, um, it's a beautiful, it's, it's a beautiful, um, you know, reality for, for me because my kitchen um, is, is open. There's a flow and, um, there's, you know, an honoring, right. Of, of who I am, who my family are, our cultural heritage and our, our cooking technologies that weren't meant to be here, just like our food, right? So it too represents resilience. It represents going back to autonomy, um, sovereignty, right? We're thinking about you know indigenous food sovereignty like my kitchen has become that for me it's um it's a safe sovereign 
space and a brave space and you know where we're constantly rupturing the colonial paradigms of food and and when we eat and how we eat and so forth and so and two i welcome color so my walls are purple <laughs> and for me it just you know reminds me of you know being the royal person that i am it, it really elevates me as a woman um who has who is continually thriving um you know within the state that we live in Yeah, it just feels so important to be reminded to thrive during this time when 
so much of the media and so much of what we experience is really heavy and I think can be really wearing on us. And so to find these simple, sensual, nourishing ways to thrive is so beautiful and such a good reminder. And yeah, I'm feeling it in my body as you speak. And this connection to the senses seems to really connect well with your understandings of indigenous womb ecology. And Mm. so often we forget the ways our environments, what we eat, how we talk to ourselves and others come to deeply impact us at an intrinsic level, even in the womb. So I'd love if you can give us some insight into what is indigenous womb ecology and how it shapes how you view the importance of nourishment. Yes, thank you for that. I'm I'm always happy to talk about um, indigenous womb ecology. And so I want to kind of backtrack just a bit so that way um, there's some context to this. So many years and years ago, um, I was really working towards understanding how our taste buds are colonized. And for me, I understood that one way to liberate myself, right? So before there was cooking, before there's food, is that my taste buds is what's really dictating what I'm eating and what I'm choosing to eat. And so for me, a part of my like decolonial mission was to decolonize my taste buds so that I can begin to crave the food of my ancestors, begin to taste the food of my ancestors. And uh, during this time, I... Uh, was blessed um, to conceive life and hold life in my womb. And I was really curious as to when taste develops um, within intrauterine life. So I began to research and, you know, what I had discovered was that amniotic fluid takes on the flavor of the food we eat. And this made sense to me, um, particularly because within my cultural heritage, I was always told, don't eat spices when you're when you're pregnant and don't eat this because, you know, it's going to be bad for the baby. And I was like, well, is it really? And, you know, so it was like this question of curiosity that opened me up, you know, to to studying and learning the impact of the food we eat um, while holding intrauterine life makes um, on and contributes to the development of taste um, within early life. And so immediately I began to eat everything you can possibly imagine because I was very determined that I was going to birth a baby with decolonized taste buds, meaning indigenous flavors. Um, indigenous um, memories and, you know, really build a a taste uh, palette that, you know, would honor uh, the indigenous food ways that were culturally relevant to me. And, you know, I went down that rabbit hole and uh, I began to also discover that there was actually um, work that was beginning to make those same types of questions, right, within um, even the hard sciences, um, began to really ask, what are the impacts, um, you know, from that early taste development, you know, into adult, into elder life? And what was determined is that what one eats from the time of conception up to the age of two, even up to five, will ultimately make that type of determination. And so, 
For me, then I began to understand this in terms of epigenetics and epigenetic memory, which basically suggests and says that what what some of us are craving today and how some of us are choosing to eat is a result of what our grandmothers, grandmothers, grandmothers ate, right? And so this is also passed down, you know, um, within indigenous knowledge systems, we refer to as ancestral memory, but ultimately it's epigenetic or genetic memory. And so for me, right, I was able to, you know, to, you know, put all this together in such a way that I was able to then expand into the doula world and into the midwifery world, speaking with other indigenous birth workers who too understood that part of their role was to safeguard indigenous food as prenatal food and as postnatal food so that we can protect our babies. Um, from being victims to dominant food systems that would then take them away from wanting to crave and or eat their cultural heritage foods. And so indigenous womb ecology is, you know, a combination of these particular knowledge systems that speak to reproduction, that speak to health, that speak to food sovereignty, that speak to ancestral memory. And um, so the work for an indigenous womb ecologist would be towards revitalizing, remembering, and regenerating a particular type of taste palette to achieve food sovereignty through what we eat and what we crave for the next generations to come. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for sharing some of those personal tidbits with us that was really nice to hear and thank you yeah yeah I guess following this thread of the conversation I'm wondering how does understanding womb ecology show us a different less insular way of understanding the body and perhaps connect more intimately to a world of senses smells uh, taste and feelings so you know with womb ecology, um, I mean, really, at the end of the day, like you're, like you're saying here, um, is about our senses, is about what we are seeing, what we are hearing, what we are tasting, what we are smelling, and uh, what we are touching, and you know, it's 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 all it's all connected. You know, like we say, it's all related. And so it's not enough to just taste the food, right? We have to have that relationship with it. So in essence, we're also teaching um, and providing opportunities to rebuild that relationship that we've always had with food that, you know, was ruptured. And so it's a different type of way to heal. It's, It's how we heal our body. It's how we heal the land. It's how we heal the food. Right. And so, you know, womb ecology, you know, just like just like taste, like taste doesn't happen alone. It's all in relation. So we're tapping into all the senses and this is going to happen in different stages. Obviously, intrauterine life, the only ability that they have there at the moment is, you know, to taste the, the flavors through the amniotic fluid. But there is also sound, right? The preparation of the food, the songs, if we are singing with our food. 
um, and so we're tapping into, you know, the hearing, right? So there's, we're developing that memory. We're creating that memory as a process of remembering. And then we have, you know, postnatal life. And so then if we are chest or, or breastfeeding, right, we're still transmitting uh, those flavors through the milk and we're stimulating, right? So now we're, we're engaging the touch, right? The mouth. And, you know, it, it's sort of like this, uh, um, it's a type of programming that's occurring. Um, and, you know, we, we begin to engage our babies, right? In the preparation of the foods, the snacks that we are giving them, they're beginning to see the colors and process. Okay. When I see this and then the smell of food, right? Um, so all of this, you know, becomes part of that, not, not just, um, you know, it becomes embodied, right? So we're going back to embodiment, it becomes a, a form of embodied memory, which is what womb ecology ultimately a tool um, holds space for. And, and really is, is what, the, you know, we're really working towards is creating that particular type of sensory embodiment or sensorial experience. So that way, the foods and the flavors and the taste are remembered. Um, so that we can, you know, continue to work towards and achieve the kind of food sovereignty and autonomy that many of us doing this particular type of food work um, hope to achieve. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, this is really bringing me a lot of joy hearing your responses. I think it's really easy to get mired in what's wrong with the world. And it's really important for us to be reminded of the beauty and the connections that we still have so much access to if we dedicate ourselves to our senses and these connections. And I'm just thinking about how tradition is such an active and evolving reality and it must be practiced to be maintained. So I'm wondering how do these memories forge connections that challenge linear versions of time and static views of tradition? Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting uh, because there's this idea, like you just shared, that tradition is like it's never changing, right? When we think of tradition, some of the dominant ideas around that is that um, it has to remain and be the same as it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and, you know, for me, that's a misconception because the way I have understood tradition, um, again, for me, has been through the kitchen, through food work, is that it's constantly changing. It's constantly evolving. And tradition is, right, is a remembering of those types of celebrations and the way that we gather and the way that we um, interact with one another. Uh, but it's to say that it, it hasn't always been the same, right? And, you know, when when there's conversations around, you know, ancestral and, and you know, traditional memory or ancestral and traditional foods, it, it doesn't mean that, like, there was there was never room for change. It doesn't mean that that it was, again, one way and, and the only way. You know, tradition, it's situated within time, place, and space. And it moves just like 
our bodies, right? Like our mobile geographies, they are culturally relevant. They are culturally situated. They do take on cultural meanings, but it doesn't mean that they can't evolve. They, they, they don't, um, like they change when they do. And we see that again through, through food. We have, um, like the churro lamb out in the Navajo nation, um, right? It was introduced. Um, however, it has become part of the traditional diet, right? And so it's how we give new meaning um, and new experiences and how it shapes us, um, you know, culturally and geographically. And so, you know, when thinking about tradition, I, I really rejoice in uh, being able to create new traditions, right? Uh, moments and opportunities that my family um, can create to 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 gather and come together and to honor ourselves and the food and the symbolic meaning, the cultural meaning that we have created uh, to take on what we have decided to call a tradition. Um, and by following up with it the next year and the year after, and, um, and, you know, to allow it to evolve because it too takes on its own life. And, you know, and it might within its own life, within the tradition, the tradition might tell us, you know what, I want this to change, it's change up, or I want, um, you know, to be more inclusive of, of this particular way or this particular teaching. And so, and some of those teachings, you know, are, are teachings from our ancestral past and, and some teachings are those of the ancestral future, right? So we're talking about indigenous futurity. And so it evolves. There's there's a whole, um, you know, um, a change of flow. It's like this, like you said earlier, there's, there's this energy. And so some of that energy is, you know, deeply rooted, you know, since time immemorial. And some of that energy is the energy to come. And so um, we honor that you do, through our practices. Mm -hmm. This really is bringing me to a phrase that comes up a lot in your work, which is eating for the next seven generations. Yes. And it seems like this connects so well to tradition and memory and the connection we foster to the next generation. To me, this means far more than inventing sustainable replacements for meat or engineering less water-intensive farming techniques, although of course that's important yep. because there's a vital spiritual and cultural aspect to it as well. So I'd love to hear how might we eat with the next seven generations in mind, considering not just sustainability, but also of course ancestral connections and the importance of food that fuels both body and soul. Yes. So <sighs> I love this. When I began to really understand my calling, I began to really understand, you know, what the food was asking of me. It was asking me to remember. And I began to ask, okay, well, why? Why do I need to remember? And it was, you know, a form of accountability. And it's like, well, you know, you are the future ancestor. And so there's a responsibility that comes with you doing this food work with there's a responsibility that arrives with the processes of remembering food the way you are 
um, the way you're preparing it. And, and, you know, I was able to understand that part of this responsibility was in fact, so that the next seven generations to come, right, have the particular memories uh, that we have worked so hard, this generation has worked so hard to remember, but also has access to the recipes, the cooking technologies, the taste, the flavors. And for me, that meant, right, I have to bring back these foods. Like my ancestors and my relatives have said to me is that if we don't do this work, then the food's going to go away. And if the food goes away, then what does that leave for the next seven generations to come? And for me, that was like a, a, an immediate like alarm. I was like, no, because I understand and, and, and my whole existence is really centered around food, right? I come from, you know, food culture and it's like the life. And so when I imagine, you know, what life would be like for the next seven generations without having access to uh, the cultural food traditions and, and again, the meals and the flavors and the recipes and so forth, then for me, it, it really suggests that, right, what colonialism set out to do was to, you know, quote unquote, kill the Indian, erase us, you know, will happen. Then, you know, where are we at when it comes to thinking about our identity? And, and not that I'm trying to play into like identity politics, but understanding this a little differently in terms of, you know, cultural and, and spiritual elements. And for me, I don't want to see that go away. And so I have understood that this work today, um, yes, it's to keep me and my family alive, but more so to pass on right, to continue the oral and all the different sensory ways of passing down knowledge, right, uh, maintaining the culinary epistemologies and being able to document them through like our cookbooks these days and, you know, other ways of, of how we engage with kitchen and food work so that they can tap into their womb ecologies, tap into their genetic memories and thrive as cultural peoples. And two, right, we're talking about autonomy, we're talking about sovereignty, and we're also talking about healing. And we understand that food is our medicine. And so this really speaks to the healing of a nation, um, a healing of people. And, and who are these people? These are the seven generations to come. And so for me, this is actually critical work, critical healing that has to happen, you know, critical culinarias so that we can continue to thrive as a people and as a nation, right? Which is inclusive of human and non-human alike. Silencio, 
me encontrarás cuando encuentres mi sol te encontraré en silencio nada nada más nada más que mirar para verte I'm I'm thinking now about how the earth has changed and in many ways that has alienated people from their traditional food practices both geopolitically through colonization and also through changing soils, water and temperatures due to climate change and this change is not stopping immediately. So how do we come to recognize the future of food as connected to ancestral foodways as deeply rooted but not as a not as an overly romanticized or you know in an unattainable past I guess Yeah uh I mean you know honestly it it really it, it's not easy work um <laughs> I'm here you know to you know just first-handedly say like this is it's going to test us um it's going to test our bodies it's going to test our minds um you know it's one thing you know to say oh well we need to decolonize or we need to reindigenize our foodways um and like eve talk reminds us um you know it this is not a metaphor right like there is a critical praxis that needs to occur um that ultimately is is also going to challenge us spiritually and um you know it it does mean working with the land and and to work with the land you know it's very challenging um you know i've heard this many times you know from from folks and community circles like oh well you know all it takes is is we need to just return to the land or um you know we need land back and and it's such it's so wonderful um you know when we think about when we think about these concepts and we think about you know how how true we can make this be um you know but there's like the physical element right and it 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 there, we're going to break sweat and and the truth is not many of us um have that physical ability um because of the way our bodies have changed our food habits have have you know shifted from eating cultural heritage foods to eating processed foods and so forth um our mindsets are are very are very different and um you know so it's definitely not something to romanticize i mean yes we can dream right but with any dream like we have to put in the work and so that work means 
yes, we need to, you know, go in and pick up a shovel. And sometimes we need to like dig holes. We need to move tree trunks. Uh, we need to squat and we need to climb. And, and then, right, we need to go into the kitchen. We need to lift. We need to chop. Uh, we need to pray. And, you know, this, this is, I mean, this is hours and hours and hours and days and years of work. Um, this is not something that, you know, is an overnight experience and, you know, we have arrived. This is something that, um, you know, we, it, we have to um, be consistent with. And, and, you know, and it's going to take a while for us to even get to the place where we can say, you know, we've been, this has been restored. And by restored, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's self-sustaining and, you know, we're not quite there yet. And so, um, you know, this, this really means we need to open ourselves and again, to our senses, uh, we need to be able to, you know, see and feel and touch and hear, um, embody and, and it could be painful, um, you know, processes of remembering are not always joyous. I mean, there, there's pain involved. You know, we need to reconcile who we are, right? Finding ourselves, having a sense of self. Some of us are not there yet. And so definitely, you know, you know, really uh, creating a body to this is that, yeah, it's, it's not all theory. Um, it's not all, you know in the imagination, you know, this is something that we can attain, but it takes, you know, it takes a village. It's, it can't just be one person. It has to be many of us. And, you know, what's wonderful and beautiful is that, you know, our plant relatives, our earth relative is there with us. Um, they're just patiently waiting for us to remember and understand and be willing to sacrifice our time and our bodies and break sweat in order for us to be accountable like we would like to be and create a better place, a better movement, a better kitchen, a better palette for, you know, the generations to come. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a lot of work. <laughs> It is a lot of work, <laughs> for sure. I mean, it's really worthy work, though, too. I feel like so much of the work we've been conditioned to believe is worthy is really just feeding the distraction and not mm. feeding our healing. And mm. I think it's by design that so many of us now don't feel comfortable sweating or squatting or getting our hands dirty or thinking that that's not worthy work uh, and how it's been looked down upon. And again, I think this is by design that so many of us are uncomfortable in our bodies, disembodied, um, you know, and so I, I really see what you're saying and I see what has been in a sense done to our humanity in this way to block us from being mm-hmm. sovereign and involved and desiring to get up and really put our bodies to the land. And yes. yeah, um, yeah, I don't know. I just just had to riff off that for a minute. Mm-hmm. But I also, I wanted to read a little quote from this article because part of my understanding of the power 
of our diet is understanding their histories as well. And you've written extensively on the ways indigenous diets existed pre-colonization and were yes. significantly changed by colonial forces. And these forces are far from gone. In fact, you're quoted in the ABC article, through food, language, and dance, Latinos preserve their unique cultural identities as saying, quote, if we're not cultivating and cooking and preparing cultural heritage foods, then not only do we lose the culture, but we also lose the sense of identity that comes with that. And then what happens? Not only would the food disappear, but we're also talking about the generational memory. So the songs, the ceremonies, the agriculture, the recipes and flavors. And that's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us going. What makes us resilient in that sense of identity that is rooted and grounded in food, end quote. And yeah, in so many ways, globalization and standardization of food has been a violent practice that has stripped so many from one of the most tangible cultural ties, which is food ways. So I just, I'd love to hear you talk us through the benefits of decolonizing our taste buds as practice and in a sense as revolution. Yes, yes. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry that I'm laughing. It's just, you know, it's, it's, and it, it's one of like, like joy. It's, it's, it's one of um like congratulations like because you know when i began to truly really like a hundred percent like dedicate myself to this particular path it wasn't well received you know again i entered this in thinking about ways in which colonization was uh, taking over my body as landscape and i thought well how is it doing this you know and this is when i was um pursuing my first master's and you know I came across a quote um, from Queer Aslan by um, Sherry Moraga where she states that our bodies were being colonized by white Eurocentric heterosexual imperialist United States and for me I was like well how is it doing this you know I understood you know the colonization of the mind I understood like those different elements and, and, you know, at the time, I, I don't remember what exactly I was eating. And I looked down and I thought through my mouth, you know, it, my mouth is its portal. It's its entryway. And, um, and I was like, I need to close my mouth and um, I need to, you know, liberate myself um, through what I eat. And so immediately for me, right, decolonizing the diet was the path was the way um and so i would you know really you know with with different circles i was a part of um i would speak to you know why we need to decolonize the diet and and um you know what 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 foods do we need to let go of or what food do we need to remember or what type of particular diet we need to return to and you know unfortunately um, many in my community, you know, I'm, I reside in, in Southern California, um, in my community, many of my, my cultural relatives um, eat a very heavy meat-based diet. And so for me to come around and talking about, you know, we need to eat with the seasons or we need to return to a more plant-based diet, um, like our ancestors, there was a lot of resistance to that. Um, and there was like, no, I'll never let go of that or, or our diet is meat-based. And 
And so what I have come to realize is that part of that decolonial work is returning to our food histories. And so, you know, if we want to arrive and, and get to that place where we can say, okay, yes, um, you know, part of decolonizing means that we got to change our diets. We need to consume more, um, you know, cultural heritage corn. Uh, we need to consume more chayote. We need to consume more um, of a three sisters diet. Um, is is understanding that that particular history that you two mentioned, you know, in the arrival of the Spanish, the mindset of the colonial body, um, you know, and 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 two, understanding how bodies became gendered. Like this is all part of that element. This is what ultimately created a shift in diet. There was this idea that one body was more superior than another if one consumed. Um, uh, chicken, beef, and pork versus eating an 80% plant-based diet and eating uh, seasonal proteins like deer, quail, and and um, larva. You know, that's one element, right? It's, it's, it's arriving to that place and saying, okay, there was this shift that occurred. Um, and then, you know, understanding the politics that, that have played out, right, in, in terms of the different kinds of economies and the food economies that have thrived and overwhelmed um, some cultures. And so like in Mexico um, and how we see the changes of Mesoamerican diet, we have the carnicerias, the panaderias and the lecherias, which are, um, the, you know, the meat processing, uh, the dairy companies and, and bread. Right. And that became a dominant force. Um, but if we were not eating those foods, it meant that we were backwards. It meant that Right, we were inferior people, and so understanding that that too played out in the development of who we are, and and who we're meant to be, and who we don't want to be, and and what we need to eat, and um, you know, so part of again, you know, decolonizing is understanding the food history, the gendering of the body, uh, the introduction of the particular foods, and why it is that we have, for example, tamales that are you know chicken, beef, and, and um, pork-based versus tomato-based, avocado-based, um, deer-based, quail-based, right? The, because of this idea of superiority. Uh, and then we have, you know, the, the, the dominant food systems that begin to thrive. And, and, and again, the ideologies of the rich and poor, like those really became embedded, you know, through the social construction of identity and law and economy and um and then too right we have the industrial food revolution um, and we have you know those movements that occurred in terms of um you know concepts around eating processed foods as savior foods world war ii introduced nutritionism how we need to really focus on nutrition and and two there's so much lack of cultural heritage foods and the nutrition that you know, is embedded in these foods, right? So that gets pushed to the side. Like uh, folks are always asking me, what, what are the nutritional benefits of cactus? And it's like, wow, you know, why is that not like in our food pyramids or in the food plates, right? And in, in those kind of developments. And so that decolonizing work means we need to also remember the nutrition, the indigenous nutrition. And by that, it's not just breaking it down to its, you know, calorie intake, but it's also understanding the, the spiritual nutrition, the cultural nutrition, because that's what 
creates indigenous nutrition. And then, right, um, you know, we have these, this, these movements that are like, you know, the eat more movement, right, the supersize movement. And so part of decolonizing is understanding that, you know, our ancestors and our relatives did not eat this way. They did not eat um, in such a gluttonous way that we've introduced early on in colonization. Um, there was a, there was this gluttonous way of eating, which which pretty much meant, you know, you were you had a high place in society. And so returning to understanding, like we talked in the beginning, our ancestors would break their fast overnight. And so you would reintroduce foods that were soft and gentle to the body, like atole. You would harvest and, and process and squat for your food and climb for your food and grind your food. And, you know, for the main meal of the day, which occurred, you know, in the late afternoon, and then to settle the palate, we would then reconsume our cacao and, you know, as, as a beverage. And so, um, you know, understanding too, how we eat was, is something we need to decolonize. Um, and how much we eat is something we need to decolonize. Um, because all of that is part of that colonial food legacy that is thriving today. Um, but understanding that all of that is part of this larger political economic like plan, right? Um, and so we need to decolonize our mindset. And one way of doing that is by remembering our ancestral gardens, our ancestral food ways, and, and not just the food, but how we ate when we ate and and why and you know bringing back seasonality into that because that ultimately determined when we had access to um certain plants and vegetables and fruits and fungi and insects and and small game um, because it wasn't available all year long it just wasn't and so there's a lot of work there there truly is a lot um but you know it begins you know with one meal at a time and we can get there, um, but it's just going to take, again, going back to, you know, the work. And uh, yes, <laughs> so it's, it's <laughs> there's a lot there, you know, and, and again, when I arrived here, I thought it was just so simple, like, oh, I'll just change my food ways. I'll just, you know, eat more plants. But, you know, again, I went down that rabbit hole and I discovered it's more than just eating more plants. It's more than that. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm feeling so riled up in a good way from that response <laughs> i'm like yes <laughs> um i yeah i just hmm. there is so much there and there is so much work but again i feel like so many of us are craving purpose and yeah. we are craving work that actually matters that feels good that's sensuous that is pleasurable that is Sometimes, yeah, it's hard and it's challenging, but again, anything worth our soul's time is mm. has challenges to it. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's the way the cookie crumbles. We can't we can't get away from that. And so I I feel revitalized and I hope others who are listening feel that seed planted in us of being passionate to come up against those challenges and rise above in a way where we're being fed and nourished by the sensuous, by the pleasure of food, by the pleasure of hard work with the land. And because I think at 
the end of the day, it's so fulfilling. And then we get to lie in bed and feel a sense of true connection. And so, yeah, just this has been such a beautiful conversation and has really gotten me inspired and yeah, I'm just thinking as we conclude, I'm really hoping that we can talk a bit about your philosophies on healing and relationality, which seems like they point to an even deeper decolonial reality. And in an article called Ecological Indigenous Foodways and the Healing of All Our Relations for Journal for Critical Animal Studies, you write, quote, it is possible to eat and live without disease and speciesism by remembering ancestral ecological, cosmological, earth-centered gastronomies, which are natural ways of healing, end quote. And I just love the idea of a cross-species relationality and paying due respect to the kin with which we share this earth. So what earth-centered gastronomies are healing and how are they healing to relationships not only between humans, but also between our animal kin? Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you, you brought up this piece. Immediately, I was like, we all heal. You know, we all heal. And I think, you know, when we begin to truly embrace and practice an earth-centered gastronomy, then we are truly engaging in a type of healing system that is ecological. And by that, I mean, it's not only, you know, between human and human, but between human and non-human and between non-human and non-human, right? So we allow and make room for all to thrive. The land thrives, the plant thrives, the ladybug thrives, the hummingbird thrives, the hawk thrives. You know, it's this particular ecology that flows and moves in in a way that was always meant to be. It wasn't meant to be disrupted at such a high rate that it was, you know, as a result of colonialism. And so when we begin to return to an earth-centered gastronomy, um, we are also mindful of the seasons. We're also mindful of, you know, the particular elements that need to occur, like we need to have cultural burns, we need to have, you know, th this particular type of um, movement um, in the land. And, you know, one thing I was I was taught about um, many years back is uh, concepts around ecological chaos, and how important it is that we have worlds within a world within a world to exist and they all have their system but when we begin to remember the foods right and eat in such a way that means everybody eats that includes you know the fungi that includes micro life and you know for me that is the kind of healing work that we need right because we cannot be you know anthropocentric and thinking oh well it's all about the human because it's not right um we you know we are nature um and and that's been taken from us we've been told that we're not that we are outside of it and that nature should exist on its own but it's a type of co-evolvement co-creation co-engagement that allows us all to eat and two, right, it's like the teachings that come with um, harvesting and gathering is we need to harvest and take what we need, but leave 
for other life to eat, for other life to consume. And so when we return to these earth-centered gastronomies, we sort of recalibrate and, and hit that refresh button that creates cyclical relationality, cyclical flavors, cyclical tastes for all life from now and, and onto the generations to come, which is inclusive of the next elderberry, the next cactus, the next hawk, the next bear, the next water, the next salmon. We're all related. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, Dr. Serrato, thank you so much for this time, this inspiration, your energy, your passion, your dedication. I think it's so important for us to hear from people like you and be reminded to dig in together. So thanks so much for your time. And yeah, I look forward to continuing to follow your work. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of For the Wild Podcast. The music you heard today is by Justin Cromer, Paloma, and Julio Quinto. For the Wild is created by Ayana Young, Ali Constantine, Erica Ekram, Emily Guerra, and Julia Jackson.